0: On air, online, on digital. D- digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Today the TFGA says a mainland compensation scheme for farmers not suitable for the state.
2: That is some of the most productive land in the world. I mean, this is not some of the most productive land in Tasmania or Australia. It's some of the most productive land in the world. So to try and compare this land with land that's on the mainland, we think is a little bit of a furphy at the moment. It's not coming anywhere near the mark.
1: And the farmers that don't mind drought conditions.
3: Yeah, so at the moment, as, as most people are probably aware, we're, we're in the middle of our third La Nina system in a row. So that has meant we've had a lot more wet weather um, and a lot more humidity. So when your process is all about trying to evaporate, having wet weather and humid conditions makes life really tricky. They're
1: farming sea salt on the East Coast. That story coming up. And in just a moment, TAS Network's looking at a compensation model from New South Wales that the TFGA says is not enough. Good G'day, Tony, with you on this Tuesday, where we'll also get the latest predictions from Maybears on the winter crop for the country. And what's the latest outlook regarding prices when it comes to fertiliser? We'll look at that story as well, plus a check on the weather. And we take your thoughts on any issue via the text line 0438922936, that number 0438922936. First up, TAS Networks has confirmed it is looking closely at the newly announced New South Wales model of compensating landowners for new power lines and towers on their land. Under the New South Wales scheme, farmers receive $10,000 per year for 20 years for every kilometre of new power lines which cross their land. Chair of TAS Networks Roger Gill and CEO Sean McGoldrick say the new model in New South Wales is under consideration. Energy Minister Guy Barnett says the issue will be discussed at a meeting of state energy ministers this week.
4: The New South Wales model has landed in the last month or so. Yes, it has been considered. It is being considered in terms of communicating with landowners and key stakeholders, including the TFJ. We want to ensure that landowner compensation frameworks are fair, equitable and contemporary. And it's appropriate that landowners are fairly compensated for any additional easements that may be required to facilitate these developments. So we're working with other state governments to understand uh, their thoughts and views and uh, I have no doubt it will be discussed at the Energy Ministers' meeting in Brisbane and uh, likewise with the Commonwealth. There's a national uh, energy partnership that we've agreed as Energy Ministers to improve community consultation, community engagement. It is important to us. I know it's important to TAS Networks.
5: It's a very important point. Um, So important that we actually took the board of TAS Networks to the north to go and meet with landowners to listen to their concerns. What we found certainly was an expectation of of an appropriate compensation, the impact on their pivot irrigation systems, very important, the location of towers in relation to farming of of lambs and and sheep farmers. Um, What we also discovered was a significant uh, support for the concept of a northwest development, the comment back to the board was, we can see why you want to do it, but we just need to make sure when it's done, it's done in a way that uh, doesn't interfere with our business because we're a business And so we took away from that the importance of a compensation regime mm-hmm. um, for, for this community. So I just wanted to point out just how important the board takes this matter. And now we're working through... Um, the, the the jurisdictional arrangements across Australia to pick up this matter, which I think so will be a big ongoing, issue going Is uh, ongoing compensation on. on the table? Yeah, so I might d- hand it to, to Sean because it, uh, this is... A big issue for us to resolve.
6: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're very supportive of, um, first of all, the existing regime, and uh, we've been in detail uh, conversation about uh, the LAA and how that would be applied in each individual landowner's case. We're working to mitigate the uh, operation uh, impact on operations of, of farms and to compensate and make known the compensation that would be available uh, through existing legislation, which is sometimes misunderstood. So there's material compensation available, as rightly should be, uh, to impacted landowners. So we're working closely with them. With respect to your question about ongoing or once-up payment, we are agnostic as a business about whether we make a payment in terms of a lump sum or whether it's an annuity-style payment over over, uh, 40 years or 20 years or 30 years. It's the same result for our business. My personal view, having talked to many farmers, is that we should give landowners the option that some farmers actually want a capitalized payment an upfront payment a lump sum that they can invest in their property others for you know different reasons want a stream of income or that's on an annual basis it it You know, with respect to our business, and indeed, might I say, with respect to to the initial conversations I've had with the Australian energy regulator who regulates this, they are uh, also of the view that this is not something that will be a material issue of disagreement. So I think giving some optionality around this is the best way to go. I looked at interest on the uh, provisions of the New South Wales compensation framework that came to the fore. It's something we're looking at, we're considering. We have to look at it in a local sense here. We also have to look at it in a national sense. We're, we're working with Andrew Dyer, the infrastructure commissioner as well, to get his views on this. We want to put something in place that it's viewed as fair and reasonable in both the national context and our local context and something that we can work with landowners to get the best deal for them.
1: CEO of Tasnetworks, Sean McGoldrick, on the issue of compensating farmers for new power lines across their land. We also heard from the chair of Tasnetworks, Roger Gill, and Energy Minister, Guy Barnett. The Tasmanian Farmers and Graziers Association says the New South Wales model for compensation is not the answer for Tasmanian farmers affected by new power lines on their land. President of the TFGA, Ian Saw, says Tasmanian farmers deserve a better outcome.
2: No, I don't think it is enough if it's based on New South Wales. And uh, when you work it down on a per yearly basis, um, and a couple of other extras that are put in, I mean, it's nowhere near enough. Uh, Tony, what we've got is the land, and if we're going to be using at the moment, and I think the discussions around that land from, say, Somerset to Palmerston or Cressy, that is some of the most productive land in the world. I mean, this is not some of the most productive land in Tasmania or Australia, some of the most productive land in the world. And we've also got farmers there who have geared themselves up to be some of the most productive farmers in Australia. There's no doubt about it. And they've used innovation, etc. So to try and compare this land with land that's on the mainland, we think is a little bit of a furphy at the moment. It's not coming anywhere near the mark. And I think that the one of the benchmarks that the Tasmanian Farmers and Graziers Association will be doing Their economic thinking and modelling upon is the um, money that's paid to the farmers on a yearly basis for wind turbines. The other thing that people need to understand is that much of the power line easement that's going through from Palmerston to Cressy is going to be extended by up to 60 metres because there's already power lines there, high transmission power lines there, and they're putting up a new transmission power line and then taking down the other one um, in years to come. So the disruption is going to be absolutely enormous. The the other issue that's in TFGA's mind at the moment and other farmers is not only that part of it, is that in Victoria through Gippsland, the Mariners link, the same line, has gone underground and it hasn't gone above ground. So we're working our way through that as well.
1: Okay, now the board of TAS Networks has actually met with farmers in the Northwest to discuss the issue. Uh, Was the TFGA part of that discussion?
2: No, and look, we understand that the board have spoken to um, some farmers in the Northwest coast, and we know that TAS Networks have got a liaison officer up there who's been talking to some farmers and indeed offering some farmers a financial incentive um, to come and talk to them and do some tests on their land, et cetera, et cetera. That financial incentive will come off any compensation that comes at the other end. So there have been discussions, but there have been no great formal discussions with TAS Networks. However, uh, we, TFGA, have uh, spoken... Um, a couple of times to Tas Networks, and we've also requested information through an FOI or an RTC, whatever they call it now, and that's all been done in, you know, with with the best of intentions. We're after a whole lot of information that will allow us, the TFGA, to be able to ask and probe uh, questions when we sit down with Tas Networks on that issue. And look, in all fairness, they've come back and they've said, "Yep, we can supply a whole heap of information." Uh, that's no problems. They've also said that they want some clarification on a couple of other, other issues, and so we've done that, and so that will be coming back to us as well.
1: Now, compulsory land acquisition, it's another big issue, and I'm assuming that on this particular uh, power line grid that you're looking at, there will be some form of compulsory acquisition. There'll be some farmers who don't want to give up their land. Is, is that Correct.
2: Well, it is. The first thing that I want to say is that the TFGA support compulsory acquisition. That's the first thing. We support compulsory acquisition and we're very supportive of all of these developments that are happening um, in Tasmania, whether that be road, rail, dams, it doesn't matter. We we think that's good for the economic um, well-being of the state. Um, The issue of renewable energies, there will be some farmers out there that will do very well out of renewables and they will be part of that renewables push. However, the problem that we've got with the compulsory acquisition is that it's very old, outdated, clunky legislation. And indeed, Sean McGoldrick has said the same, that it's all old and clunky and it's not really, it's not really fit for purpose. The problem that we have got with the compulsory acquisition is it's, it's very intimidatory. It's, it's, it's the big stick. It's not good. And what's happening is that we're, and it doesn't matter whether it's TAS networks or not, it can be a range of other organisations, is that they will come to the farmer, And they will say, we are going to be putting such and such a development through your land. It's for, you know, the greater public benefit and we need to do some tests or whatever. Normally, the farmer will say, oh, I'm not too keen on that. You know, I think I'll give it a miss. And they'll turn around and say, well, it's in your best interest to work with us, not against us, because we will compulsorily acquire. So, It's the big stick. It's the big threat. So what TFGA is saying, and in fact, the National Farmers Federation are now saying, because we met on this this issue last week, is that there needs to be a national, we think there needs to be a national framework, not on the legislation, that's too hard to change, but a regulation that outlines the process for compulsory acquisition. And we think that that needs to be The first part of that is that you need to be able to treat the farmers with respect.
1: Okay. Now, do farmers get any compensation for wires and towers that are already on their lands?
2: Well, they are, but they're not getting paid very much. And they were old deals that were done, you know, 50 years ago. And the landscape was very different then, Tony. I mean, if you think of the landscape through from where we're talking now, I mean, there might have been a few potatoes and a few vegetables. And and on on the more broad acre scale, it was, you know, it was Polworth sheep and um, some oats. So things have changed dramatically, absolutely dramatically. The production has changed, the innovation has changed, um, you know, we've now got farmers that have, you know, got centre pivots, yards, roads, rails, underground infrastructure and the disruption will be enormous. I mean the other disrupt, the other issue too that we just gotta keep in the back of our mind is the biosecurity issues as well.
1: Now, Ian, so president of the TFGA, what does your organisation make of plans to shed around two hundred and fifty jobs at TAS networks? I mean, is there concern about maintenance of wires and towers already on many farms?
2: Well, look, we have been seeing more and more outages and we know that TAS Works are you know, working frantically to upgrade as many lines as they can. What we're concerned about at the moment is that we know that when we have these really severe weather events that the power can go out for considerable amounts of time. Now, to the average person in the city, that's just something that happens. However, when you've got a dairy farm and you've got cows that can't be milked, um, for five days, you're then talking a serious animal health issue. And then the other thing is those cows start to dry off and you can't get them back on again. Um, farms have pumps that are going to pump water. So you've got cows that are drinking 60 litres of water a day. How are you going to get the water to the cows? Electric fences go off and we know that cows will test those fences every day anyway and then they'll walk through to greener pastures. If we've got such a reduction in people out on the field, we, TFGA, would want to be assured that there's going to be no disruption to getting power back on and you know TFGA has worked very very well in the past um, with the severe weather events in June or July you know myself Sean McGoldrick and Kelly Morris our membership officer were at a tripartite talking and when we heard of you know a dairy farm or a road where it was impacted we'd make those phone calls and we could uh, we could get that remedied pretty quickly if you've got less staff there it's going to be difficult. A lot of the staff know all the roads. If they're going to cut back, perhaps the model will be to use contractors and they won't understand those rural communities as the Tasnetworks linesmen, et cetera, understand the rural communities. So we've got concerns, but we're hoping that uh, what Tasnetworks do isn't going to uh, impact the rural industry in a negative way.
1: It's President of the TFGA, Ian Saw, on the compensation package for Tasmanian farmers affected by new power lines across their land. Also on changes to the rules around compulsory acquisition and the uh, loss of jobs that TAS Networks plan. Coming up on the country, our latest outlook for the national winter crop and what's happening with fertiliser prices.
5: How many moons are there in Tasmania? On evenings, Andy Gall ventures into the celestial sphere. But then I want a person whose surname is Moon to ring up and have somebody else stand in front of him and create a shadow. With his Andy brand of astronomy. So we can have a human eclipse of the moon. It, does that make sense? Is that
7: yeah. possible? I'm can totally I,
8: on I'm board. Just
5: think... Andy Gall for evenings. A human eclipse of the moon. We'll play Bonnie Tyler. <laughs> I feel dizzy now. On ABC Radio Hobart.
0: Coast to coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: The national commodity forecaster Abares is tipping winter grain production this season to come in just under last year's record-breaking harvest. Clint Jasper has more.
9: Despite La Nina's third appearance in a row and the wet, cold conditions it brought to the East Coast, ABARE's executive director, Dr. Jared Greenville, says nationally things are looking good.
10: Yeah, it's certainly been an eventful year this year. Um, and I guess as the season continues, we're seeing overall some pretty good conditions, like when you take a national kind of perspective. And we're forecasting that the gross value of agriculture production is going to be pretty much on par with the record that it set last year. at billion. Aves forecasts the national winter
9: grain harvest at 62 million tonnes this season. Favourable conditions in WA and South Australia have helped raise bumper crops, 23.8 million tonnes in the west and 11.2 million tonnes in SA. Both will be record breakers if those numbers are achieved. And they've more than offset the smaller harvest expected to come out of New South Wales, where devastating floods and challenging conditions during the season have led Abares to forecast a harvest of 13.2 million tonnes, about 30% less than last year's best-on-record for the state. In Victoria, crop damage and losses in the north will be more than offset by better conditions in the Mallee region. In total, Abares has forecast winter grain production to rise 15% off last year's crop to 10.7 million tonnes. And Queensland's winter crop production is forecast at 2.9 million tonnes, which would make it the second largest on record, while summer grain production is also tipped to lift 5% to 2.6 million tonnes. But this year farmers have paid huge bills for their inputs and Dr Jared Greenville says that'll weigh on profitability.
10: We're expecting that to decline from last year. So last year we saw some record levels of farm profits across the country. But this year going in, although we, we haven't got our full survey results back, based on what we're observing in terms of fertiliser prices, which have been around three times above what they might otherwise be, um, we're expecting that to squeeze out quite a lot.
9: Dr Greenville says high commodity prices combined with strong overseas demand is tipped to push farm exports to a record-breaking $72 billion.
10: Countries and and other buyers have really turned to Australia, as uh, been a fairly reliable producer of food, Um, and we've seen that continue and so that's that's been a, a I guess a bit of a reason why we've been able to export or that demand side has been so high and that's really kind of contributed to the high export pace.
9: Some of the most acute impacts of the wet cold spring have been felt by vegetable farmers along the Murray River. Victorian onion grower Peter Shadbolt has been struggling with this year's harvest. Getting bogged two three times a day sometimes. Last week we were bogged at three o'clock in the afternoon and we didn't get out till ten thirty that night and normally we would We've never been involved harvesting onions before ever, so it's certainly bringing a whole lot of new challenges. While prices are high, so are the bills. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. You get a bit excited when you see the prices of what you're getting and then you get the bills for the fertiliser and the diesel and all those things have gone up by so much. Some of Peter Shadbolt's onions end up in Melbourne wholesaler Michael Piccolo's warehouse.
7: It's, It's a high rise. I mean, this time of year, usually, we're purchasing onions, 10 kilo onions, for maybe $7 a bag. Now we're purchasing you know, close to 20.
9: And the especially high prices are expected to stick around till after Christmas.
7: From what we're gathering and from what we're hearing from growers and wholesalers, I think it'll push through to probably the end of Jan, Feb. So it's probably a two-month thing. Leading up to Christmas, it'll be high prices. And then I think after Christmas, we'll start to see them settle but they'll still be pretty high.
9: But rest assured, growers and wholesalers are nearly certain the $10 iceberg lettuce won't be making an appearance on the Christmas shopping list. No,
1: won't. Clinton Jasper ending that story with additional reporting from Francesco Salvo. Abe is predicting the winter grain crop to come in just under last year's record crop and the price of onions through the roof. Australian farmers can expect some relief in potash and phosphate prices over the next six months, but nitrogen fertiliser prices are set to rise, according to Rabobank. Company's semi-annual fertiliser outlook says current price trends and volatility are in line with a three-year cycle of peaks. Rabobank Sydney-based farm inputs analyst Victor Pastoria says primary producers should keep a close eye on the prices, as buying at the right time will be critical.
11: We are going to see some relief in the prices, mainly for Potash nutrient, we can face some relief for phosphate as well because these two nutrients are the ones that farmers can reduce application rates and still be able to harvest good yields. But that's not the case of nitrogen. So if you cut nitrogen application rates, you're going to cut your yield. And for nitrogen as well, we have the situation around Europe and the gas because all nitrogen fertilizers that farmers use globally now, they come from ammonia, and ammonia by turns comes from natural gas. It's a major feedstock, and Europe is a major producer, importer, and exporter. And as we speak now, beginning of December, the gas storage in Europe still have good levels, but winter is going on there, and it's not clear when the major countries will need to go back in the market and start buy gas again. That will increase price because they have a lack of supply because of the sanctions against Russia. So when that happens, it will likely lead to a closing in the industries that manufacture nitrogen fertilizers, so they're gonna cut the supply globally. And, and It's unclear when and how strong this is going to be. So that's the biggest question mark around the farm input sector now. It's how strong it will be, the increase in natural gas price in Europe, and when is that going to happen.
7: So there's a lot riding on how cold they feel in Europe and how much heating they decide to use.
11: Yes, yes. And this is a very recent thing, like from the past 5-10 days. If we check the spot prices for gas, that is like someone entering the market that doesn't have a contract, it's increasing price for gas in Europe. So it's clear the price will increase, but it's not clear how strong and when that's going to increase bad for the manufacturers. But at least for phosphate and potash, there's going to be a relief in the horizon for farmers. And hopefully they will manage to keep the margins positive for the coming season. And depending on how the farmers set the enterprise as a whole, and especially when they are able to buy fertiliser. So as we seen in this season, timing is critical for coming season.
7: What advice do you have for for farmers <laughs> regarding the best timing for buying that fertiliser?
11: Uh, just keep a close contact with your dealer and always keep asking prices because things can change quite That's my advice. Be a good friend of your dealer to be always updated with the prices.
1: RoboBank Australia Farm Inputs Analyst Victor Pistoia uh, talking there to Tanya Murphy on predictions around the fertiliser market next year. Well, senior ABC manager says the broadcaster has to ask for a please explain from the Bureau of Meteorology after changes to forecasting had already started to affect radio programmes. The Bureau is moving away from having meteorologists provide weather crosses to ABC and commercial radio programs like this one in favour of using a less qualified community information officer instead. Warwick Long spoke to Head of Regional, Rural and Emergency, the ABC, Hugh Martin, who says he has concerns including further centralisation of Bureau staff presenting weather crosses to ABC programs.
12: We got confirmation in late October that the the Bureau was planning on uh, making these changes to centralise their, their their radio crosses. So there had been... Some discussions or some concerns beforehand in some of our regional stations that they were getting different different crosses from different locations, but there wasn't anything official. So we had a meeting with the Bureau in late October, on the 20th of October, and at that meeting they officially told us that they wanted their meteorologists to concentrate on the science and that they would be creating a central communications team to manage radio crosses. That would be based um, in in an east coast capital city,
3: so you had to ask them for that information after the change had already been made
12: that 's correct. The changes hadn 't been completed but the um, but they were sort of underway and um, and so for example, in mid September, we had uh, some changes to our, our radio crosses in the northern territory um, and then uh, in early October, in in Queensland, some of our radio teams uh, were calling their regular bomb contacts for radio crosses, and were told to contact a number, a phone number in Melbourne, instead. So, um, and that was a change that that wasn't communicated prior to those um, those presenters just being told, or those on air teams being told to call a different number.
3: Is it concerning to what you can deliver? to your audience that localised information could be lost if bureau crosses are centralised?
12: Well, look, first of all, let me say that I've got to, you know, I understand that the um, the Bureau of Meteorology has a an organisation to run. They're a government funded organisation, just like we are, and they're managing um, uh, their budgets in the way that they see fit against a strategy that that they've set. So we can understand that there are going to be changes from time to time, and the rationale behind that we might disagree with, but that's not our it's um, it's not our our organisation to run. What we're looking for really is a clear communication process so that we can understand what it is that 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 they're wanting to do how what the changes are that they're going to make
3: it's a question of accuracy too isn't it you've got presenters on radio programs right now introducing senior forecasters and meteorologists onto their show when they are in fact not that there's something else under the bureau of meteorology
12: well, that's, that's true too, and it's, it's unfortunate because it's also part of that, that, that communication process, which is not quite um, where we want it to be at the moment. We actually don't know who these people, who the communication, um, uh, um, you know, experts are at the other end often, whereas um, through, you know, through years of, of interaction, we've come to know their senior meteorologists um, and form that relationship with them, which is really important.
1: Head of Regional Rural and Emergency, the ABC, Hugh Martin, speaking to Warwick Long. And in full disclosure, Hugh Martin is a manager of the department that Warwick and I work for. At this stage, the normal forecasters we are used to hearing in Tasmania will still be doing the bulk of forecasts on the ABC, apart from a couple of crosses each day, and we'll speak to one of those forecasters very shortly. Also coming up, the East Coast farmer who prefers drought-like conditions and the amazing prices for stock horses. Uh,
8: First up, though, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. An inquest has heard that a teenage mother was too ashamed to let a regional South Australian support service into her home because of the squalid conditions there in the weeks before her 11-week-old son died. At least 34 people have been killed when an intercity bus and other vehicles were hit by a landslide in Colombia. They're engulfed by tonnes of rock and mud as they travelled on a mountain road. Several people have been pulled out alive after residents joined rescue teams in a desperate search for survivors. Most economists predict the Reserve Bank will lift interest rates for the eighth straight month when the board meets this afternoon for the final time this year. The Mount Wellington Cableway Company is yet to say if it will continue to pursue a cable car up Hobart's Kanani Mount Wellington but opponents to the plan are celebrating the time for the company to appeal to the Supreme Court against its defeat in the planning tribunal has lapsed, meaning it has limited options. And there are calls for Australian regulators to follow the lead of Europe and crack down on businesses falsely claiming their products are sustainable. The Consumer Policy Research Centre has found that while a large amount of Australians identify sustainability as a key factor in purchases, many more feel they're worried about the truthfulness of those green claims. Full bulletin one.
1: Time now to check the latest on the weather. Matthew Thomas joins us from the bureau. Good day, Matthew. Good day, Tony. How are you? Good, thank you. Any rainfall of notes in the state?
13: Oh, look, um, we did have some um, some rain um, yesterday with that um, with that um, low pressure system that moved over the state. And look, the bulk of the rain was about the um, the south. And the east, the highest total was at um, Mount St John, um, with 25.4 millimeters, and Mount Wellington with um, 16.2. That was to um, 9 a.m. this morning, and um, some reasonable totals also with the um, the southwesterly flow of, um, about the um, the south and the, the east. Um, 10 millimeters at Taruna and um, and at Ferntree, um, 8 millimeters at Lesley Vale since 9 a.m. We've seen cloudy conditions just persist about the south and the east, and we've seen a few locations pick up points Millimeters, but nothing really significant in the rain gauge, and a fairly similar um, pattern is expected to continue today. We still do have that low pressure system just sitting to the east of Tasmania over the the Tasman Sea, and that is directing that um, that southeasterly airstream over the state, maintaining the cloudy conditions um, about the south and the east. There are some good radar returns um, for the um, the upper east coast from. Um, Friendly beaches through to around St Helen's um, at the moment, but mostly there um, the, the precipitation looks to be offshore or just tracking along the the um, the coast. We might just see um, the odd light um, shower about the, um, the south and the east into the um, the afternoon um, that low pressure system just remains over the Tasman Sea tomorrow, and a weak ridge that's to the west of Tasmania will weaken overnight as a cold front approaches, and the cold front will then begin to um, to move over. Tasmania um, during um, tomorrow, we'll see showers developing about the west during the morning and extending statewide um, during the afternoon and evening, and possible thunderstorms about the, the north um, east in the um, in the evening. In terms of um, rainfall um, tomorrow, the the highest totals are going to be around um, 10 to 15 millimetres. Um, about the um, the west of the state, but we could see um similar amounts about the um the eastern ranges um, as the the southerly stream pushes up the um the east coast during the um, uh, later in the day um, and it will just um, see some showers really um kick off over the the higher ground about the east um, of the the state um, we move into a very um, cold um, southwesterly stream then um, through Thursday. Um, it will be windy, particularly about the, um, the, the northwest of the state, um, but also potentially about the, the southeast and the, the lower east. And we will see um, the, um, showers um, about the, the west, south, central parts of the state, less getting into the north. we only probably got, you know, one to five millimetres really about the, the north of the state. But we could be looking at, um, at 20 to 30 millimetres about the, um, the far south. And the, um, the west of um, the state, um, with around five to, to ten millimetres through um, through the central, uh, sorry, the Upper Derwent Valley, um, and um, the remainder of the, the southeast and um, and east coast districts. Um, into um, Friday, we see a, a ridge of high pressure begin to um, to move over the the state. And the um, the shower activity really does ease back. And we really have uh, looked to see showers from, um less than two millimetres in the, the showers about the um, the west, central and southern parts of the, the state as that ridge of high pressure moves over the, the state. That ridge then on Saturday moving out to the east and the shower activity begins to um, contract to the east coast, but still only a, a millimetre or two in that through the um, the morning and the afternoon and then clearing away. And then we'll see showers develop about the north-west um, into the evening. Um, And that's as another low-pressure system does approach. And it will bring some some rain and wind to Tasmania through Sunday and Monday as that low-pressure system moves near or over um, the state.
1: Okay, Warnings?
13: Um, So in terms of warnings, we've got... um, strong wind warning um, for today for eastern coastal waters from Cape Portland to Tasman Island. So that does take in Bank Strait and Franklin Sound. Um, And for tomorrow, there's a gale warning current for western coastal waters from southeast Cape to Stanley for west to southwesterly winds and a strong wind warning current for northern and eastern coastal waters from Stanley to Tasman Island. Um, Looking at the coastal waters, um, so we've got um, those south to southeasterly winds, 20 to 30 knots about the east, but grading to 10 to 20 knots um, about the, the west, and the winds um, decreasing um, to around 10 to 15 knots about the, the south um, through the, um, the afternoon, becoming variable to um, 15 knots about the, the north, um, with some sea breezes expected about the um, the northeast coast. Um, now. Into Wednesday, Um, we'll start off with west to southwesterly winds 10 to 20 knots, although there will be 20 to 30 knots about the east very early. um, They should decrease um, to 15 to 25 knots. Sorry, they should increase to 15 to 25 knots about the north and the east um, as the morning progresses. So by late morning, I expect them to be up around 15 to 25 knots and reaching 30 knots about the north into the afternoon. And then the cold front will move through. We'll see the wind shift southwesterly at 20 to 30 knots Um, about most waters during the evening and reaching 35 knots about the west late. Um, In terms of the swells around the west and the south, there's a southwesterly swell of one to two um, metres currently, and that's expected to build to three metres once the the cold front moves through um, tomorrow. There is also about the south um, and east to um, southeasterly of two to three meters um, which should decay away to one to two meters tomorrow through the north there's a confused swell of around one meter with both a westerly and an easterly component and about the east there 's a southeasterly of two to four meters um, but also a southerly of um, of um, one to two meters um, running up the east as well the wave rider boy at um, Mariah Island is currently sitting on a significant wave of 2.6 metres, a maximum wave of 4.5 metres and a 10 second period The wave rider boy, Kate Sorrell, currently has a significant wave of 1.6 metres a maximum wave of 2.2 metres and an 11 second period
1: Beauty, thank you Matthew
13: Have a great day.
1: You too. Matthew Thomas from the Bureau.
13: It's the Country Hour
0: with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania
1: Some amazing prices paid for stock horses. We'll uh, talk about that story very shortly. But if you're driving up the east coast of Tassie at the moment, it's incredible to see the green rolling paddocks in an area that's typically warm and dry. It's had its fair share of La Nina and lashings of rain and even hail. Good for grass growth, but it's not been good for salt production. Chris Manson and Alice Lang from Tasman Sea Salt on Tasmania's east coast have struggled in the wet to keep their tonnages up. Anna Breen dropped in to find out more about the process.
3: It's all really uh, evaporation, basically. So we suck up the seawater and we look to evaporate off the fresh water from that. Uh, The great thing about the way that we do it is we do it in a really um, sustainable way in the sense that we've developed sort of... uh, or we've utilised technology so that we're not using a lot of energy throughout the whole process.
14: Well, that was one thing I was going to ask you. I would have thought it would use quite a bit of power
3: Yeah, so traditional methods of of harvesting sea salt often do use quite a lot of power. What we're doing here is basically taking natural evaporation rates and then we're just amplifying those. So normally on the east coast of Tassie we've got really good evaporation rates um, and we've just sort of developed a system which amplifies those evaporation rates and then we use energy sources that are coming from natural resources in the sense that we're actually using thermal energy from the seawater and we're also collecting thermal energy from evacuated tube solar panels.
14: So Alice, you're actually using the seawater again to help warm up the water inside the tank?
15: Yes, that's correct. It was really important for us when we moved here what makes our salt so special um, is the the purity of the water, how clean it is here in Tasmania. Um, It was really, really important to us that our production process supported that and that we use clean renewable energy wherever possible.
14: Now tell me you did say before Chris that usually there's really good evaporation what's happening at the moment that that's affecting some of your salt making processes?
3: Yeah so at the moment as as most people are probably aware we're we're in the middle of our third La Nina system in a row So that has meant we've had a lot more wet weather um, and a lot more humidity. So when your process is all about trying to evaporate, having wet weather and humid conditions makes life really tricky.
14: Even though it's all happening within the tank, it still makes it tricky.
3: Yeah, well the first part of the process actually happens outside, so we're relying on natural evaporation rates for that first part of the process. So that's where we've found a real bottleneck in the last few years and that's where we've had to sort of put in some developments and some advancements to to really fine tune the system so we can try and evaporate in these, in these tricky conditions.
14: So Alice, where does that uh, put production then in terms of sort of meeting market demands?
15: So that first year of La Nina really halved our production. Um, And so we had to put in a big expansion at that point to get us back up to where we need to be. And so we're only just meeting market demand at the moment, but it has made our process... We've had to look at it really carefully and make sure it's incredibly efficient. Um, And hopefully when we come out of this third La Nina, then we'll be in a really, really strong position to start growing our markets and growing sales again.
14: So you had to boost up production. Was that just having a bigger tank or more drying facilities?
15: We put in a second evaporator at that point. So that was our main bottleneck is the evaporator process which is the first part of our production process Um, and so putting in a second evaporator should have doubled our capacity except it just got it back to where it needed to be. (laughs) Who would have thought because you started actually during the drought didn't you Chris?
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that we sort of uh, situated ourselves here was because the east coast of Tassie is often sort of, unfortunately for a lot of farmers, is often in drought. So that's unfortunate for them, but it actually makes some really good conditions for for salt harvesting. So we had a good five years when we first started off um, from our side of things, but then the last three years have been really tricky.
14: Well, a good five years also of developing markets, I, I presume, Alice, and then now you're, ha- you're probably having to say, hang on, we'll get your supplies when we can.
15: It's, it's a frustrating position to be in. Um, hopefully, at the moment, we are managing to fulfil um, all our orders. It's just that we're ready to now really start going out and getting new customers, exploring new export markets. Um, and we're just having to hold our horses on that for the time being. OK, so how important are the next few months,
14: Chris, and, and what do you want? I mean, obviously dry weather, but is that enough?
3: Yeah I mean dry weather is kind of what we're after. Like I was saying before I mean one of the I guess to put a positive spin on the sort of wet weather than the conditions we've been having is that it's made us really analyse the system in, in a real in a lot of detail. Um, so it means we've tried to eke out every efficiency we can out of the system that's possible. So hopefully when the weather does turn and they're forecasting sort of the, the La Nina system to be kind of waning a little bit more around December, January time, that should give us the kind of weather conditions that we're after and that should just do an automatic boost to our production to, uh, to levels that we were really need.
14: And so you've got good demand and you're, you're fairly confident you could uh, actually sell a lot more.
15: Absolutely. Um, we really, really believe in the quality of our sea salt. Uh, the water here is so clean and pure. It makes for really fantastic salt and we just need to be able to make more of it um, and we're sure, we're sure that we've got the customers out there for it.
14: Now one little uh, offshoot of the business is you giving people
15: tastings. Tell, tell me how that's going. One of the main reasons we wanted to do this is we love food, we love flavour, and salt more than any ingredient has the most profound impact on flavour. And so sharing that with with people was really important, so it's been really fun um, being able to do tastings, show people how salt impacts flavour, do pairings with our salt mixes. Um, It's been a really fun little add-on to our business. You
14: both had uh, amazing careers back in the UK, Chris you're a lawyer and Alice you're in sponsorship. Now you've been here a while and been into this, how do you find the contrast?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a really steep learning curve, but it's been the most amazing thing we've ever done. I mean, it's been, it's been by far and away the hardest thing we've ever done, um, but I don't regret a second of it. I think it's incredible what we've built up and achieved um, over a short period of time, and I think we've got a product that's that's got real quality to it, and I think there's a market out there that that, that wants it.
14: What about you, Alice? A big change for you. You left your home country as well.
15: Yeah, and that definitely came with its own difficulties. But I think I used to look out of my office window at grey concrete and now I look out over this, the most pristine ocean, across to Freysnay Peninsula. Life doesn't get much better than that.
1: Yeah, no comparison. Alice Lang. You also heard from Chris Manson. They're the owners of the Jasmine Sea Salt Company on the state's east coast salt-making operation affected by the wet weather. Now let's head to Victoria on sloping land in the hills of the Kiwa Valley. A new cropping farm is being established for produce in high demand. And what they're growing is pretty unique, although it's been around for thousands of years. Gap Flat Track specialises in edible natives, things like bush mints, lemon myrtle, lily pillies, myrnong. However, the site is also part of a research project looking at drought-resilient crop farming. Our rural reporter Annie Brown went to see the farm.
3: Minty.
0: It's morning tea time, and steeping in the kettle is fresh bush mint tea. And homemade cake is being passed around.
3: There's some lemon myrtle cake
5: that'll go really well with that. So help yourself.
0: These indigenous flavours could one day be more common as researchers look at ways of farming that will be more drought resilient in the future. The research wants to demonstrate the value of stepping away from growing only canola and wheat and diversifying. Crop researcher based at Melbourne University's Dookie campus, Dr. Doran Gupta, says growing more native grass and vegetation will help.
16: Primarily when we look for broadacre cropping, uh, we are um, trying to promote and uh, we're trying to address the challenge when we have uh, on-farm only two major crops growing, such as saivete and canola. We don't have any other vegetation on those farms. So to enhance their um, resilience over years, um, having more diversity on farms, we are encouraging having native grasses. Whereas when we think of what we have here at Gaze Farm, we do have native crops. That is something to consider from a bigger perspective, that we want to have more diversified options in our diet, on our plate, and that will come when we will think of including these native crops, they are not going to replace the broad acre crops, which are our stepples. But having uh, those options in market, when we produce them, when we sell them, coming to our plates, uh, that is something um, we are really keen to make it happen. And uh, the part of project which is... Uh, w- through which we are working at Gaze Farm is addressing that bigger bigger challenge. And also we we have uh, really forgotten some of the grains such as kangaroo grass. So on Gaze Farm we have on a um, sloppy piece of land kangaroo grass not not just to prevent the soil erosion but also to consider um, this particular crop as a future grain crop where you might find in coming years on shells um, a bread which is made with kangaroo grass grain.
0: In the hills of the Kiwa Valley in north Victoria, Indigenous farmer Gay Baker has been busy turning slopy land into cropping country.
7: I'm establishing my business, which is Gap Flat Track, uh, Edible Natives. Where I'm located right here is up on the side of the mountain, so it's quite steep. Uh, realistically, not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> and it's land that you're... Average farmer down through the middle of the valley who has nice flat land, river flats, etc. they don't really consider that this land up here is viable. The work that I've done here is to put in a road and to terrace the area so that we could make flat areas so that you can actually work on flat areas. It's just that they're small flat areas on the side of the hill. The farm grows a range of indigenous crops. So we have Tasmanian mountain pepper, three different sorts of lily pillies, three different sorts of finger limes, lemon myrtle, and then we have Murnong, native parsley, native celery, two at the moment only two different mints. The main one that I started with was Murnong. Tell me a bit about the story of
0: Murnong. It used to be grown a lot here in this area, didn't it?
7: Yes. Murnong was a staple crop for Indigenous peoples in a lot of Eastern Australia areas. And it was um, eaten out, basically, by your sheep and cattle and so forth. So Murnong, in my opinion, was always a cultivated vegetable. And so what has survived has now reverted back to its wild stock. So we now are in the process of seed selection. And as part of that also too, we will be looking for shapes of tubers, sizes of tubers, that sort of thing, that will be acceptable to go into commercial production. A native parsnip needs to look something like a parsnip.
0: With a growing demand for native foods, Miss Baker hopes to show that it is profitable. There is a huge demand.
7: There's a huge interest and there's a huge demand for native foods. The industry can't keep up with supply. That's the problem. We can't meet supply. I'd really like to see a connection between lots of small growers to coming together so that we've got a big enough supply. You know, if you've got a number of people all doing that, then that makes much bigger numbers. It makes the whole industry much stronger.
1: That's Gay Baker from Gap Flat Track speaking to Annie Brown about the native produce being grown there, including bush mint, lemon myrtle, lily pillies and myrnong. Well, finally today, while graziers say they can justify paying thousands of dollars for a good working dog, as it does the work of one or two or three men, can you say the same for paying six-figure sums for a good horse? Well, for many bidders at this year's Dalby Australian stock horse sale, the answer was, you bet. Alice Marshall was at Dalby for the biggest stock horse sale in the country. She has this report.
17: $100,000. That was the amount one St George couple walked away with after selling their stallion, fittingly named Royal Double Your Money, at the Dalby Australian stock horse sale. That was the top price of the sale. It, alongside some other hefty bids, like the $90,000 sale of a mare from Clifton and a $95,000 mare from Roma. They're both notably progeny of the retired camp-drafting stallion Hazelwood Conman. These big figures helped to bump up the average price to $22,961, higher than last year's average of $19,351. So why are these prices so high? I asked David Felsch. The owner of Ray White Rural, who hosts the sale,
10: the horse industry's gotten more professional and more prize money within competitions, and which leads people into breeding better horses and paying more for them. and And I think that's it's more competition-wise. Um, we've got a really good catalogue of horses, and and it's a, it's it's a step up on last year as well. So the quality's gotten better. So I suppose the money, the money comes with it.
17: You said the competition prices have gone up. Have they gone up enough to? could meet the prices that we're seeing actually in the sale
10: yard today? Well I think also breeding a horse, giving it a foundation and having it come back through a sale there's money in that as well as the competition side of it but I mean there's some pretty big prize money around at the moment and and yeah I do believe it's catching up slowly.
17: The money being thrown around is enough to wow anyone let alone someone who is yet to reach high school. Um,
18: My name's Felicity Wells and I'm from Hannaford and our a half west of
17: here, so. Wedged into the draw between some pretty experienced older cowboys, Felicity Wells is only 11 years old. But that didn't stop her from selling the gelding she was riding for a fair sum of money.
18: He went for 26000 and I was pretty happy with that and um, yeah, I was happy to ride in the, the.
17: You were riding up against some pretty big names and I dare say you're the youngest that's been on the draw so far, do you think? Yeah, probably, yeah fun to read like that. Definitely fun. And can you tell me a little bit about the horse that you were riding? What's his name?
18: Uh, well, we call him Morton, but his real name's Shield Tyson, and I've, uh, I've just been riding well, Jonathan Sylvester's been having him for quite a bit, like six weeks just before he and I got on him out, so this is probably my sixth time riding him um, and
10: yeah, I... Yeah,
18: he's he's a six-year-old gelding, and I for the sixth time I've rode
17: him, I quite like him. I cannot believe this is only your sixth time riding this horse because he looks like he's a pretty strong horse to ride, is he? Yeah, he is a pretty strong
18: horse. Um, getting first time getting on him, um, I was a bit because I'm used to my horses. Um, Bit different because other people ride different ways
17: and I thought oh it's a bit different but after a while I've got used to him. Because you don't have big long legs to wrap around him how do you go keeping him underneath you because you did a fantastic job of keeping him under control in front of a pretty big crowd in front of lights and everything's going on you looked like you were very in control sort of how do you do that how do you go about that?
18: Well I was nervous to be in there but um I... I don't know, actually. I guess I just thought maybe just not be nervous and as soon as I get in there, just
17: have fun. Riley Elrit from Mornish, northwest of Rockhampton, is 13 years old. His years spent working on his gelding also paid off.
18: Uh, his name's Norbert. Um, Norbert's seven and I've been riding him for uh, probably since he was three or four. Um, Yeah, he's pretty cool.
17: The bids went up and up for Norbert, who eventually sold for $57,500. But for Riley, the sale was bittersweet. Yeah, I'll miss him. He's one of my favourites. You did a great job showing him off. How was that feeling when you were around there and you can hear the bids going up and you're just out there trying to focus, I guess, on the beast and showing the horse off as best as possible? Oh,
18: yeah, pretty hard. It's... it's bigger adrenaline rush. Um,
17: and have you got any other horses that you're training up at the moment?
18: Yeah, I've got a couple at home and I've got another um horse here, like, 174.
17: So you're about to hop on and go again, are you?
18: Uh, yeah, I'll sell another one tomorrow.
17: Um, are you looking to buy any while you're here? Uh, well, I'd like to, but that's up to Dad. <laughs> You think maybe you've got a bit of bargaining power with Dad now that you've just made a pretty big sale? Yeah, probably.
1: (laughs) Yes, young Riley Elrod, just 13 years old from Mornish near Rockhampton, probably got a lot of bargaining power with Dad after selling his horse Norbert for $57,500. That's not bad money for a 13-year-old, is it? Uh, The Power and a Livestock sales are on today. Richard Bailey will be with us tomorrow to check out all those prices. And that report from the uh, the Dalby Stock Horse sale from Alice Marshall. On the uh, text line, Dave from Loon says, uh, Ray Weathercrosses, hi, Tony. It's an institution to hear from the duty forecasters. Broadcast would be the poorer for not hearing from those with their finger on the weather pulse. It's a highlight of the program regards, Dave. Thank you for that, Dave. Uh, don't forget our big Givethon day tomorrow where we will give away, drum roll, a five-kilo box of Tasmanian cherries, all to help the good work in trying to raise money for the giving tree this year. So don't forget uh, to listen in tomorrow. Listen in from early, from, uh, you always listen anyway, but from breakfast right through. There'll be uh, lots of uh, different things to be given away and uh, our... Is ours is a box of uh, cherries, Tasmanian cherries. So look for that tomorrow after midday on the Country Hour. Don't forget ABC Rural Online and ABC Rural Facebook page as well. Catch you after midday tomorrow.